This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. By finding that larger pattern, we're able to find um, a likely vessel that uh, could have been responsible for this contamination. This week on the show, Eric Jorgensen joins us to talk about his approach to microbiology and his quick reference guide of significant bacteria found in the brewery environment. This interview originally ran in July of 2017. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. Welcome to the Master Brewers Podcast. I'm your host, John Bryce. Today, I'm joined by Eric Jorgensen. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Eric is with Highland Brewing Company down in Asheville, North Carolina. I got to spend a little time with Eric just last weekend during the District Carolinas meeting. The newest Master Brewers District just held their second technical meeting, which had a strong lineup of speakers. And we also had a chance to tour both the new White Labs facility as well as Wicked Weeds Funk House, which was my first experience visiting a serious sour beer production facility or seeing a real-life cool ship. Eric, did you enjoy the meeting? Yeah, uh, honestly, it was one of the, the better meetings I've been to, and I've, I've been on a, around a couple districts already, so um, I was quite uh, pleasantly surprised. It was great. Good. You recently put together an outstanding quick reference guide of significant bacteria found in the brewery environment, something that I wish I'd been able to access during brewing school years ago. Your paper, which was recently published in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly, takes a very practical approach with emphasis on common problem areas, magnitude of risk, and includes some great images. As I mentioned to you in Asheville, I don't want to just regurgitate the contents of your paper here on the podcast, but I do want to give listeners a taste of what they can expect. So let's do that first. Acetobacter is one of the beer spoilers covered in your paper. How about giving us an overview of where this organism can be found in the brewery, how it works, and how to identify it? 
Sure. Yeah. So uh, Acetobacter, um, it is a bacteria that is aerobic, meaning that um, it is an obligate aerobe, meaning that it will be killed by the absence of oxygen. Um, so you can essentially find these guys wherever there's going to be an interface between your product and uh, the the bare air um, or any kind of uh, aerated headspace. Um, so most commonly found in the headspace of barrels, um, casks, or balance lines uh, between fermenters and brights, um, and draft lines. Essentially, wherever there is going to be uh, contact with oxygen, um, these organisms can thrive. Um, they're most famous, essentially, for um, producing a, a vinegary off flavor um, in your barrels. Essentially, what these organisms do is they can uh, consume the ethanol itself in your beer. The alcohol itself, they can consume that and turn it into acetic acid or vinegar. Um, and that's how you end up with uh, barrels that end up tasting like salad dressing. Um, the cool thing is that uh, by uh, they, they can be kind of an indicator organism. For, um, for the most part, you're not going to find these uh, in your beer and spoiling it because um, uh, most breweries have pretty good dissolved oxygen control um, downstream of fermentation. Um, but they can be great indicator organisms uh, to find kind of like open vectors um, and, uh, and help you troubleshoot problem areas. And you also mentioned that uh, some folks even rescue oak barrels that are that have been contaminated with uh, acetobacter. Why don't you talk about that a little bit too? Sure. Yes, yeah. so I've I've picked up this little uh, tip or trick um, at one of the ASBC conferences um, and uh, in in my talks uh, with some fellow microbiologists. Um, what I found was that one of them was uh, actually uh, they were able to rescue kind of like um, vinegary or acetobacter laden barrels just purely by um, controlling the dissolved oxygen levels inside the barrel. So by keeping oxygen out of the barrel, they're able to kill all these organisms um, and essentially produce uh, really great lactic sours um, out of barrels that uh, were at one point full of acetobacter. So it was a pretty cool tip. Could you talk uh, uh, about some of the common hot spots in breweries and maybe comment on finding spoilers at harmless points in the process that might indicate uh, problems in other areas? So where we've typically found hotspots uh, here at Highland is kind of downstream of the fermenters. So um, we've had uh, some issues in our bright tank. Um, we found essentially after a whole bunch of troubleshooting that uh, the instrument we were using to measure carbonation was actually the source of contamination for the bright tank. Um, we uh, typically have some issues um, when we're kind of uh, commissioning new lines um, and trying to figure out the, the CIP process there, especially if it's with kind of old equipment that we're kind of piecing together ourselves um usually takes us a little while to uh, to track all those hot spots there um especially we had an, an issue with our our can line um all kinds of like nooks and crannies there because it's a, a pretty old uh, piece of equipment and uh, been uh, thoroughly used beforehand so um that had some pretty interesting hot spots there okay could you talk about the process, your process for troubleshooting? How, how exactly do you go about getting to the bottom uh, of a source once you discover there's been a contamination? Sure. Um, so the place where I always start is like, where am I confident that there's not going to be a problem? So if I were to be troubleshooting an issue within our fermenter, I'd look at, um, you know, the, the wort coming out of our kettle immediately before the, uh, the heat exchanger that's been boiled. I have hundred percent confidence that that's going to be fine. So I'll start there and then kind of work my way forwards. Um, the, and that same concept um, can be applied to other areas in the brewery. For example, um, we were getting all kinds of growth coming out of our can line uh, when we first started it up. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, even even some some beer spoilers. We found a few colonies of Lactobacillus parolens in there once, um, and you know, put the batch on hold, tried like heck to get it to spoil, um, but it it wouldn't. It was stable, and like in in this situation, um, here was a Lactobacillus that was not able to to actually spoil our beer, so we ended up being fine. Um, but like, there were some like real shots across the bow to uh, to to get our butts in action and, and start troubleshooting this thing, um, and so. I know from the rest of our process that our bright tanks are pretty clean. They're not going to be the problem. So I'll always start there. Um, so we installed a new Zwickle or a new sampling point um, immediately before the can line, uh, right in the hard pipe, um, going in right before um, the, the beer goes into the bowl. Um, and so we essentially have four different sampling points that we can check now. The bright tank, which I know should be clean, um, a, a a sampling point right before it goes into the can line, which will cover you know the pump and the hose and the hard pipe and everything going all the way up to the can line. Um, when the cans immediately come out of the filler, I can essentially have a lidless can that hasn't gone through the seamer yet, and of course um, I can grab a, a finished can which has gone through the seamer. So we have these four different sampling points. Um, and so anytime I'm taking a real close look at a process like that, um, I'll try to do replicates too, uh, cause micro is kind of squirrely by its, by its very nature. So I'll grab like three samples from the bright, three samples from the inlet, uh, three lidless cans, and then three lidded cans. Um, and we'll just check all of them. Um, and so essentially what we found was that bright tank was clean. Our inlet was clean. Our lidless cans were dirty and our lidded cans were dirty. Um, so, you know, looking at the bowl and the filling process was our, our, our first step. Um, after a lot of back and forth and all this, we, uh, we essentially, um, kind of, uh, ended up pulling out the, the column to the can line and, uh, we found some pretty old gaskets and, you know, some, uh, some little eddies where some beer had kind of like been, been stuck and was, uh, was not getting cleaned well enough. So, um, cleaned that all very well, replaced some of the gaskets. We threw that column back in, um, and that knocked our, uh, our micro down measurably in the can line. There's still a couple other hotspots we're trying to figure out, um, what exactly is going on. Um, but like that was a huge one for us and that, that probably reduced our, um, our kind of harmless background growth by about 75%. You mentioned to me that documentation is a very important part of your micro program at Highland. Could you talk about the importance of documentation, what it empowers you to do and how you approach it? Yeah. Uh, so we keep a lab notebook um, and for every Petri dish that uh, we, um, every sample that we screen goes in, it gets grown up on a Petri dish. And then we, uh, after incubation, we kind of like look at the colonies on that Petri dish and um, try to figure out what's what, what's a threat, what's not, um, you know, quantify it as best we can, uh, how many colony forming units are on there or, or CFUs, um, whether or not those colonies are acid producing. And then, um, you know, kind of as described in the article, we'll go through the catalase tests and the oxidase tests, which are kind of enzymatic tests um, and a gram stain, which is kind of like a, a membrane test um, and try to get all these characteristics about the, the different organisms that we find. Um, we'll keep all that very thoroughly uh, cataloged in a notebook. Um, and then when we uh, turn that information digital and kind of track it in spreadsheets, um, we kind of summarize that plate um, into uh, essentially like a, a risk assessment, either no risk if there's no colonies whatsoever, um, you know, negligible risk, uh, moderate risk, severe risk, or, or if we actually find any colonies of a beer spoiler, that'll be a, a high risk. Um, 
And we kind of summarize our plates that way. Um, and with that information tied to uh, like a, a different batch identification um, for, for every batch of beer that we brew, we can have traceability all the way through our process um, from the brew house all the way out to packaging and, um, and distribution and, and things that are out in the market. Um, and so with this capability, if there's ever an issue or we got a customer complaint or um, we you know, discover something wrong with the batch later, we can track it all the way back to the brew house um, and pull up all of that information for that batch. Um, so uh, not only is that great for responding to individual batches, but it's also great to responding to uh, larger trends in our data. Um, so kind of like taking a step back and, and looking at our data set from a, a wider perspective, um, we can find either uh, individual vessels or individual processes um, that are uh, essentially adding to our, our growth rate or, you know, essentially like hotspots or vectors where organisms are getting in. Um, we actually saw this one time. Uh, we ended up uh, losing a batch of uh, our Clawhammer Claw Oktoberfest um, because uh, it, it essentially turned sour in the bottles. Um, we saw this one of the strangest things I've ever seen. We had um, a, a case of bottles, and between four to eight bottles out of every case was sour, and the rest were fine. Um, and so trying to trace back this issue to where the source was, um, we had to uh, essentially um, track every single colony we had uh, ever um, keyed out or, or gotten information on or, or interpreted um, all the way back to each different process point. And what we found was that um, the packaged beer, so bottles, cans, and kegs that had come from all originally come from a single fermenter tended to have higher growth on average than um, the rest of our brewery. Um, and not only that, it was also the same fermenter that um, this, this claw hammer ended up coming from. So by finding that larger pattern, we're able to find um, a likely vessel that uh, could have been responsible for this contamination. Um, so we ended up pulling the fermenter all, all apart, getting inside, checking it out. And we found a really nasty weld in the racking arm that was uh, just really poorly put together. Um, and so, I mean, we, we cut that off. Uh, we just cut the weld out completely. We didn't even, uh, it only added about six inches to the end of the racking arm. So it was largely unnecessary. Um, and all of our micro issues went away from that fermenter. Um, so that's a way that you can use um, kind of like your, your documentation uh, to, to kind of see the big picture, the larger patterns in your brewery and use them to solve problems. Very cool. Uh, you mentioned uh, spreadsheets. I was going to ask what software you use to manage that program, but it sounds like it might be more manual than that with notebooks and spreadsheets. Uh, do you use any other uh, off-the-shelf software for this process, or, or do you kind of just – is it a customized process um, that's done very manually? Um, it's it's pretty much just Excel. Uh, we use Excel a lot. Um, you know, we can, uh, our spreadsheets are relatively advanced, I, I guess you could say. I mean, there's some, you know, some auto population of data and some automatic formulas and whatnot. But um, at the end of the day, it's still pretty manual. Coming up. Oh, we probably have some really nasty kegs coming out. Someone had a party in the woods and, you know, kind of like inoculated um, the, the external washer of our, our keg line. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Mm -hmm. 
Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to... Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to home brewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. The Master Brewers calendar is a hot mess, as you might imagine, due to COVID-19. Almost everything in April and May has been postponed or canceled, including the Brewery Packaging Technology course. Definitely check the calendar events at mbaa.com for the latest updates. Here are some events that remain on the calendar as of April 3rd. The District Texas Spring Meeting has been rescheduled. The new date for that is May 29th in Fort Worth. District Midwest meets at BrewDog June 27th. District Northern California has moved their meeting at Drake's Brewing to July 23rd. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years, and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. You touched on this a little bit. I was going to ask how you sort of utilize that data to identify and react to patterns. Um, and I know you mentioned to me um, that, you know, you feel it's it's important not just to have sort of CFU tunnel vision, but to look at that, that big picture. Um, do you have, could you, do you have, could you comment on that a little bit more? Where are there any um, instances where, you know, you see a positive, but, you know, you have to look at that in the grand scheme of things. Uh, could you give an example of something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I uh, first got to Highland, um, I got to um, look at our data a little bit differently um, than we looked at it when I was at, at Stone, because um, I essentially got to build the, the program from the ground up. Um, and so uh, the system I had, I had previously described where you essentially sign like a, a risk scale um, to each Petri dish, um, rather than uh, simply reporting the CFUs, because there's there's so much more to that, right? So if I had um, a Petri dish that had 300 CFUs of a completely harmless bacteria, um, it's definitely indicative of a vector, but that particular batch, um, I, I wouldn't that wouldn't raise alarms for me for something we should hold or be concerned about. Um, 
obviously tracing down the vector would be uh, a concern, but um, that bash is, is going to be fine. Um, whereas even a single CFU of a true beer spoiler, um, that would be a, a red alert for me. Um, and we would, we would put that brand on hold. Um, so uh, kind of by, by summarizing um, the, the, the Petri dish information um, in a kind of risk assessment, it's, it's a little subjective. It requires a lot of uh, faith in the intuition of your microbiologist. Um, but at the end of the day, it's very effective for determining patterns. Um, the most objective uh, measurement there is the difference between, you know, a, a zero um, risk and a, a one risk, right? Or, or no risk whatsoever or a negligible risk. So um, you can use uh, that to kind of track down hotspots. And so we did that with um, uh, finding this hotspot in our bright cellar. Um, essentially, we saw a sudden drop um, in, the, in the percentage of perfectly clean plates between our fermenter and our bright tank. Um, and then from the rest of the packaging onwards from the bright tank, um, it was... Uh, Statistically, it, it was it was the same. Um, so we're seeing the same growth from the bright tank on, but we're seeing a sudden um, uh, increase in growth from the fermenter to the bright tank. So we we kind of uh, looked at the whole process under a fine tooth comb. Um, we couldn't find anything wrong. Like all the CIPs appeared to be uh, doing well. All the welds look fine. Um, and uh, so we're kind of. I remember it, we were just kind of sitting there looking at this bright tank, and we're going through the processes one at a time. What's coming in, like? Um, the, the CO2, um, you know, the, the rinse water, the shadows in the bright tank, that sort of thing. Um, and then a brewer came up and started taking a carbonation on the bright tank and, um, we were, uh, kind of watching him do his thing. And we saw that, uh, on this, on this instrument, um, it would, you would kind of, uh, measure the carbonation with this little plunger that would raise up. And um, when that plunger raised up, it would push whatever was in the chamber, in the measurement chamber and, and the, uh, the, the lines back into the bright tank. So every time we were taking a carbonation measurement, we just kind of like dosed the bright tank ever so slightly with uh, whatever was um, inside, <laughs> growing inside the, uh, the measuring equipment. Um, so that was a very simple fix. We just kept the Zwickle closed um, until that uh, measure, that, that, pressure chamber had, um, or the, uh, that, that plunger had risen and, um, the valve downstream had opened and it kind of started the, the free flow of sample, um, through the piece of equipment. Then we would open the Zwickle, um, and essentially with just kind of changing, uh, our SOP ever so slightly, we we're able to completely eliminate the problem. Um, so things like that, which we would never have found if we weren't looking, you know, at the bright tanks specifically as a point in the process that was a vector. Very good. I want to ask how you decide when it's time to send something out off to a third party for identification. And when, it's, when it is time to do that, could you give listeners some pro tips for doing the uh, DNA purification themselves to reduce cost? Um, so when it comes to sending samples out for uh, third party analysis, um, I pretty much do that when I'm completely stumped as to what a thing could be. Um, or if like the, the stakes are very high and I just need, um, you know, genetic identification of, of something. Um, so I can give you an example of uh, a time when I was completely stumped. Um, we had this very unusual growth coming out of our keg line samples. Um, so uh, it was the the plate itself was very foul smelling. Um, it grew in a sheet over the entire plate, so it, it looked um, like very very bad growth. Um, but the weird thing was that it triggered the pH indicator change 
in the media, but it did not dissolve uh, some dissolved um, calcium carbonate or some sebedin calcium carbonate in the media itself, which is usually an indication of an acid-producing colony. So you had a pH change, but your uh, calcium carbonate was still stable. Um, so that was really bizarre. Um, and also the morphology under the microscope was, uh, was pretty, pretty bizarre. It had these massive uh, endospores. Um, so when we sent that out to get third-party identification, it came back as this uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria called Panobacillus polymixa that actually had a symbiotic relationship with um, like plant roots or, or tree roots in the soil. So it's like, what is a soil bacteria doing in our kegs? We're getting um, like dirt pickup from somewhere. And then we thought about it and it's probably like, oh, we probably have some really nasty kegs coming out. Someone had a party in the woods and, you know, kind of like inoculated um, the, the external washer of our, our keg line. Um, so we took a look inside the external washer and um, for, you know, for the most part, it was pretty clean. But uh, way up in the corner around some seals, there was uh, some kind of dense kind of black growth. And what was happening is that um, this organism had kind of gotten into uh, our external washer, found a niche and was producing these really massive and really durable endospores. And so the outside of the keg would essentially get, get washed with these uh, endospores, including uh, the keg coupler. Um, and so when we went to take our micro samples out of the keg, our sterile samples, you know, we hit it with some isopropanol, we hit it with some flame, um, and we'd kind of take our, our sterile sample that way. But the endospores were so resilient, um, they were able to uh, live, survive through that, and then they would just go gangbusters whenever they hit our Petri dishes. Um, and so uh, by essentially, we just detailed the external washer, and this growth completely went away. Um, and we never would have solved that if it wasn't for the, the third-party identification that kind of um, pointed us in the right direction that it was uh, derived from soil. Oftentimes, uh, third-party labs, they can charge you, oh, I don't know, I'd just be ballparking here, but um, anywhere between 150 to, to 250 bucks, something like that, um, if you were to just send out the colony, and then uh, that person would then have to isolate the colony if it's, if it's not isolated well enough. Um, they would have to uh, lyse the cells, purify the DNA, that sort of thing, um, and uh, then do PCR and, and then do sequencing. Um, so you can cut down on those costs a lot, if uh, you just kind of handle the upfront, those upfront steps yourself. Um, so you can lyse the cells yourself, you can extract the, the DNA yourself, um, and uh, that's, that's relatively easy to do um, if, you, if you have the, uh, the, the right equipment. Um, and uh, in some cases, you can even buy some universal, um, um, universal primers um, and some, some heat-stable polymerases and kind of perform the PCR yourself as well. Um, and so if you do all of that prep work and you can, uh, you know, send out your already purified uh, and amplified DNA, um, there are some companies that only charge five to 10 bucks a sample uh, to do just the sequencing for you. Um, so you can, I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous reduction in cost from several hundred bucks to, to like five bucks a sample. Um, yeah. So it requires a little bit of equipment on and a little bit of know-how, um, but you can save a lot of money that way, especially if you've already got some of this equipment, if you're already doing um, some basic PCR. Very good. How about for the craft brewer who's just beginning to build their micro program, where should they start? And do you have any recommendations for how they should go about media selection? 
Yeah, um, there's a few different resources available uh, for this type of thing. Um, I do a lot of volunteer work with the ASBC or the American Society of Brewing Chemists. Um, I'm the chair of the craft brewing subcommittee and and kind of uh, our whole goal is to create uh, resources and guides and content for folks who are trying to start uh, their own craft brewing labs. Um, so uh, if you look on the ASBC website or you want to become a member or something, um, there's plenty of resources for you there. Um, the Brewers Association, uh, we're also starting to to collaborate with them a little bit on some kind of like intro to microbiology videos. They're available for free. Um, you know, just, just Google them. You'll find them. Um, when it comes to starting a micro program for a small craft brewery um, and, and the media selection that you'll need, um, it kind of boils down to what your, what your problems are, what, what problem you're trying to solve. Um, from a philosophical standpoint, the smaller breweries that don't have as many resources will probably be looking more at reactive plans. So looking for beer spoilers only, and then, you know, uh, taking action when they find spoilers. Um, the larger your brewery is going to get, the more proactive you want to be. So you're looking for harmless organisms, you're tracking down vectors, and you're going to try to eliminate um, these uh, these hotspots before a true beer spoiler can get in. Um, I can't really give you a one-size-fits-all uh, because every brewery is going to be facing different um, different problems or, uh, you know, different areas of, of concern for them. Um, but I can kind of give you uh, a rundown of different media types in a nutshell, or at least, at least my favorite ones. Um, so the media type that gets the most, uh, kind of use around Highland is LMDA or Lee's multi-differential agar. Um, and this is a really great media. Uh, I like it because you can get this really strong differentiation between species um, from a colony morphology perspective. So you'll look at a plate and you can see like, all right, I've got, uh, you know, two CFU that look like this and I've got four CFU that look like this other thing. And then you only need to sample two colonies, um, uh, one from each you know, each, each, uh, different morphology to figure out what you've got. Um, it also has a pH indicator, uh, in there and also has, um, some suspended calcium carbonate, which can, is, will tell you whether colony is acid producing or not. Um, so you can get a lot of information out of this media, uh, right out of the gate. So I like it a lot. Um, gets a lot of use around here. Um, we supplement with cyclohexamide to kill, uh, our brewer's yeast, um, just cause we don't want that, you know, the, uh, those colonies, um, kind of clouding or giving us background growth um we also use hlp a lot or that's uh that's shoes lactobacillus and pediococcus medium um there's a great video on this that the brewers association and the asbc put together um but i really like this media particularly for small craft breweries because you don't need to autoclave it all you got to do is boil it um and then it's ready to be used um so the equipment investment is very low to use this it's a great place to get started um you also don't need an anaerobic incubator because the media itself contains a compound um, it's called sodium thioglycolate but it essentially scavenges the oxygen out of the media um, so that you have this kind of nice anaerobic um, environment in there and so that's really great for growing uh, lactobacillus and pediococcus uh, in small breweries that don't have um, great access to uh, you know uh, anaerobic incubators or, or autoclaves it's a great place to get started when it comes to wild yeast uh, which is kind of a, another big area of concern for um, for craft breweries um, I like to use Lynn's cupric sulfate media. 
Um, and that media is essentially augmented with some kufric sulfate, and uh, it selects against um, most Saccharomyces strains. Um, so it's really easy to grow your your Brett on there um, and, and those types of things. So if I had to pick my, my top three, it would be LMDA, HLP, and LCSM. Very good. Your article ends with a section that discusses how lactobacillus and pediococcus adapt in the brewery. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so this is uh, just kind of a, it's a summary really of some really tremendous research that a lot of uh, people who are far smarter than I uh, have put together over the years. Um, but it's it's kind of a really, a really cool mechanism, how these organisms can um, become an issue um, and species that are usually uh, sometimes um, not known to spoil beer suddenly can, can come and, and spoil your product. Um, so there's many issues uh, at play here, and we're just starting to kind of tease them apart. The most well-known um, mechanism right now, it has to do with hop tolerance. So uh, hops contain some antimicrobial uh, compounds um, that essentially they will, um, they act as ionophores, they will uh, transport some hydrogen ions across the cell's membrane, and essentially uh, change the pH gradient in the cell. Like so, um, but the, uh, it'll, it'll change the environment on the inside of the cell um and that'll that'll make the membrane kind of like less effective it um and uh, more specifically it has to do with nutrient uptake so um especially with your gram positive organisms like lactobacillus and pediococcus they have trouble um, bringing nutrients into the cell um and so one of the mechanisms by which these organisms have learned to adapt to hop tolerance um is by uh, essentially it's, it's called a plasmid um, it's essentially a uh, a ring of dna that is separate from their genomic dna um, and they can kind of like pick up uh, these plasmids and swap them back and forth they can eject them they can um, you know clone them and make more um, and there's a couple of genes on these plasmids which are very mobile elements um, a couple of genes uh, there's hor a hor c and hit a that we know of right now um, that code for hop tolerance by various different mechanisms but essentially uh um, it's, it can help pump those hydrogen ions back outside the cell. It can, um, some of them can help pump the, uh, the hop compounds themselves back outside the cell. And, um, some have to do with, um, like metal ion uptake, which it can also use to help prevent its, um, prevent the impacts of the, the antimicrobial compounds of the hops. Um, and, uh, essentially they can, they can pick these plasmids up spontaneously and in the lab, uh, they've been able to spontaneously induce hop tolerance in as few as 10 generations. Um, so it's relatively easy to be acquired. Um, and I mean, this is just, this is just evolution at its finest. Um, they, they adapt to a new situation, uh, and rather quickly and easily because the plasmid is, is the means of adaptation and it's so, so mobile. <laughs> That was Eric Jorgensen here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview with Eric, check out his TQ paper for more tips and tricks. You'll find a link in the show notes or just type bacteria into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? There's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. 
It's hands down my favorite brewing conference and is packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.